Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. Today, I'm back to my old interview format, and I have Michael Bungay Stanier coming on the show, and he was back on the show back in 2010. So for you long, long time listeners, you may recall him. And we talked about his book, Do More Great Work. And we talked about good work and great work. And I'll put that show in the show notes. So if you want to listen to that, you can. And today we're going to be talking about leadership and doing great work. And when I talk about leadership, I'm not just saying, oh, are you the CEO or do you manage a team? Because we lead in many different arenas in our lives. While Michael might not be a parent, I'm a parent. I lead my house. I lead my family. I lead the aqua monsters. You know, I lead in many aspects of my life. You know, when I show up to a meeting, do you show up as a leader? So thinking about what arenas do you lead in and how can it go about doing great work? And Michael in the interview goes through the difference between bad work, good work, and great work. I'm really excited for you to listen to this show because it can affect all of us. Even if you don't have leadership in your job description, if you have a written job description, because we all at some point in our lives have an arena where we are called to lead. Thank you so much for listening. I will circle back after my interview with Michael. Michael, hello and welcome back. Oh, you know, it's so nice to be back. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Michael, we had you before, it was a long time ago, about seven years ago, and we talked about doing great work and your your last book of Do More Great Work. Yeah. Today, you have a book called The Coaching Habit, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. And I want to make sure that the listeners don't just turn this off and go, well, I'm not a coach. This is great for Michael and Corinne. <laughs> <laughs> but why would I listen? You know. So right. can you go in and explain who this is for? Yeah, this is for, uh, there's two levels for whom this is for. The first is it was written thinking about, look, I'm a busy manager, I'm a busy leader, I'm a busy individual contributor and work somewhere somehow. I like what I do, but I feel a bit overwhelmed. I feel a bit crunched. I feel like I'm not doing as good a job as I might at leading the people I lead or influencing the people I'm trying to influence. How can I more easily lift my game? What it is definitely not about is turning people into coaches because honestly we have enough coaches and the people who want to be coaches will find other ways of doing that. It is about helping be more people be more coach-like, which when it comes down to it, Corinne, is just how do you help people stay curious just a little bit longer? How do you make them rush to action and advice giving just a little bit slower? Because honestly, we are all advice giving maniacs and I'm just trying to slow that down a little bit. So on the one hand, busy managers, busy leaders, kind of who I first had in mind. But what we've learned is 
if you interact with other human beings, the tools and the insights in this book seem to be useful for people. You know, there was a, a review that went up on the web today and somebody just went, you know what, my, my relationship with my wife is actually much better because I use this. I got a call this morning from a guy going, I work with teachers to help them be more effective in getting their test results. And it's already transforming the way I interact with the teachers that with whom I work. Wow. Yes. It, you know, honestly, it's super cool. I'm so, I'm because I know you've had a thousand people who've written books on on your on the show before, and you write a book. It's a vaguely miserable experience because you know you don't know what you're doing, and you you hate yourself, and you hate your book, and you can't get what's in your head out into the paper. And then you finally get your book out into the world, and you're like, "Pray God somebody reads this," because <laughs> it's taken me months of my life. And you know, most books don't sell that much and aren't read that much, but this book somehow has caught people's imagination and is doing really well. So I'm super excited about it. And why do you think it's caught people's imaginations? Uh, I'm going to just say it's mostly because I'm incredibly charismatic, you know, charismatic and super smart and good looking. Um, but so it's probably a combination of of a few things. The first is, this book actually took me four years or so to write, and I wrote three or four complete book-length versions of it that were slightly crappy and I abandoned before finally finding what this book was about. So, you know, I really worked it to try and make sure it was it was a good book. Um, the second was that I found a mantra that proved to be really useful, which was, I'm going to write the shortest book possible that's still useful. Because I find a lot of books, you know, they're kind of a bit bloated and a bit boring at times. And uh, I wanted to, my book to be lean. Uh, the third thing is, I really cared about the the design, the elegance of it. So we worked with a really fantastic designer called Peter Cocking and he made the book light and accessible and not just a big block of text coming at you so I think the book is good but you know that's no guarantee of anything uh, and then you know we've been really committed to try and this is a whole nother topic so stop me if it, if, it, if I'm going too far off track here but when you when you write a book there's a lot of pressure in that first two weeks the book comes out mm -hmm. to try and make as big a splash as possible. You know, the book launch, maybe I'll get onto a bestseller list. And you kind of, lots of people invest all their capital into that first two weeks, you know, all their time and effort and money and relationship equity to try and go, trying to blow the world up. And I went, God, it's so exhausting. And I really want to play a longer term game. I want to, I want this book. This is my, my goal for the book. I want it to be considered a classic. And you, you don't get a classic from a two-week book launch. You get a classic from a commitment for a year or two years or five years to support it and champion it and talk about it and find ways to get it out into the world. So I think a big part of it is, um, you, know, you know, it's almost a year later. Here I'm, I am on a podcast talking about the book. And it's part, because I love it, but partly it's a commitment to go, you show up, you talk to people, you write articles about it, you find ways of making it useful and relevant and give it a chance to find its audience. Well, and speaking of making it relevant and useful, I mean, isn't the point of the book also in line with your long-term gain? Like, this isn't just these tips and tricks about how to manage or how to lead. This is about building new habits. Yeah. 
So that that's absolutely a big part of it. And so what's nice is it 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 fits in with a okay the jargony word is ecosystem. So we have a you know my business Box of Crayons is a training company. We sell programs to help busy managers coach or be more coach like. So what's part of what's great is the book absolutely feeds that and supports that part of the business. So I knew that when I wrote this book, even if it really sold no books through Amazon, let's say, it could be a really valuable part of the programs that we take out into the world. But secondly, I have a personal mission. So here's how I define my personal goal is to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. And you saw that in kind of the Do More Great Work book that we've talked about before and how to help people make bolder choices to do work that had more impact and more meaning. And the Coaching Habit book is kind of equally committed to go, let me give you ways to help you show up in a bigger, bolder way in your life and make bolder, braver choices. Wow. And I love I love that intent. And I want to go into real quickly the difference between good work versus great work. Sure. That's a great question and, and a nice framework. And so as you mentioned nicely in the introduction, about five or six years ago, I put out this book called Do More Great Work. Um, and it's got a very simple model right at the start of it. And people will get this right away. It's simply this. Everything you do, so this is not just your work, it's your life. Everything you do in your life falls into one of three buckets, bad work, good work, or great work. And the very quick definitions of those three different types of work, bad work is effectively the mind-numbing and soul-sucking and heart-crushing and <laughs> life-depleting work, the work that makes you go, oh, my God, Karen, why am I doing this? You know, why, is, why am I spending time doing this thing? And everybody knows what they're talking about when you think about what bad work is. Good work is easily described as your job description. So I know some of us have formal job descriptions because we're in big companies. Some of us have ad hoc job descriptions. We work for ourselves or small companies. Some of us may be you know, caregivers or at home. And even though we don't have anything written down, we've still kind of got a job description. And that's good work, productive, efficient, getting things done, moving things along, keeping the, the wheels of life turning over. And that matters. But then there's great work, and the simplest way I've got to define great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. So it has both an internal and an external focus. The external focus, the work that has more impact, so it makes a difference. You know, what Steve Jobs would say, puts a little dent in the universe. But the work that has more meaning is kind of the personal side, which is what do I care about? You know, what are my values? Who do I want to be in this world? And what's the work that speaks to that? You know, somebody once said, work is the ultimate act of love. And I'm not, I'm not sure that's entirely true, <laughs> but, but, it, but it is true that work is such a big part of how we spend our lives. You want it to reflect who you want to be, who you want to be when you grow up. And that's kind of what great work is. So, Michael, I want to get some clarification because doing the good, the great work, and then leading, right, there is, isn't there still some mind-numbing, soul-sucking aspects even when we lead, even when we're doing great work? Yeah, there is. And um, so the way to be thinking about it is if, if you understand those three definitions, which I know people do, if you draw a little circle and then go, okay, 
how would I divide my life up at the moment? How am I spending my time right now? And how much bad work, good work, how much great work am I currently doing? What happens when most people do it is that it, they have a pie chart that, you know, it's like I've got, let's say, zero to 20% great work. I've got 10 to 40% bad work. And the rest kind of makes up the good work piece. And then your question is, right, am I happy with that or not? Pretty much I can guarantee people aren't happy with it. They're like, ah, I've got too much bad work. I've got too much good work. I haven't got enough great work. And then you go, okay, so what do we need to do to alter the mix a little bit? How do we change things up? And typically what I think you're looking to do is going, what can I do to eliminate the bad work? And you can eliminate it by a number of different ways. You can just stop doing it. And sometimes you just do this stuff out of momentum. Secondly, you can um, delegate it. Just because it's bad work for you doesn't mean that it's bad work for everybody. It might be something that's fantastic for somebody else. I mean, on our team at Box of Crayons, honestly, writing contracts for me, bad work. It's like <laughs> detail. It's minutiae. I'm not good at that. I get bored or whatever. Silvana who is our contracts and money person, she is awesome at this. And she, this is what lights her up. When she starts talking about the contracts she's working on, she's like on fire. It's awesome. And I'm not that person. So just because it's bad work for you doesn't mean it's bad work for somebody else. So delegation is a big part of it. And then there's like, okay, I can't, I can't stop it. I can't delegate it. Then you go, so how do I do this as quickly as possible? You know, is there a way of automating it or just making it a more efficient process? And fourthly, you go, all right, how do I, if I have to do it, how do I somehow reframe it to be work that I love to do or I'm more interested in? It might never be great work, but it could be that it moves from bad work to good work in some way by reframing it. So it's all part of the mix. There's no magic combination of things, you know, no magic number. You're not after like, 71% good work and 32% great work. And and that's why my math is no good because that doesn't add up to, that adds up to more than a hundred. So that obviously doesn't work, but there's no magic number. It's like, what's best for me? What's best for my team? What's best for my business unit? And in some ways that combination about what's the right mix between good work and great work to connect it to leadership, you could say that that's a definition of strategy because what a strategy is boils down to here are the choices we're making. Here's what we're saying no to so that we can say yes to the key choices that we're making. And most strategies will have a combination of good work, productive, efficient, getting at things done, bringing in the money and great work, blue ocean strategy, reaching for what's new, innovating and doing things differently. And you want to have the perfect mix. And that's the challenge. That is the challenge. And one thing I do want to clarify, because I believe you went to law school, correct? I did. So, yes. So theoretically, for people listening out there who go, well, I went to law school, so I should do contracts. You're an example <laughs> of it, it may not be within your you know, to zone of genius, per se, to, well, do, it, to do that. So here's what's brilliant about what you're saying, Corinne, is how easy it is to be seduced into thinking that because you have a level of expertise, it's something that you should be doing. 
And it's very, um, you know, you see this all the time. I mean, law is a classic example. Somebody signs up as a 16-year-old to do a law degree. You know, they end up doing a law degree. They then go, okay, well, I didn't love that, but I've done a law degree now, so I should at least do my articling here, go to the bar. And they do that, and they're like, well, I'm here now. I may as well join a law firm. And look, they pay pretty well. And you join a law firm, and you work really hard in a slightly miserable job for two or three years, and you're like, okay, I'm not loving this. But, you know, I'm not. I'm two years away from associate partner, so why don't I just get there? And then when I get that, I'll be able to kind of move on and do something else. And you become associate partner, and that's like awesome. And it's still not great. But you know what? It's only five years, and then you'll be a partner. And that's where the power is. That's the glory, right? The partnership. So you just hang in a bit longer, and finally you make that partnership thing. And then you're like, okay, I'm a partner. Okay, I'm a junior partner. It'd be great to hang, maybe another five years and I'll be a senior partner. And then, then, then it gets real. And then you become a senior partner and suddenly you're 55 and you actually have never loved being a lawyer. However, you have a whole lot of expertise in lawyering, but it's not really connecting to who you are in this world. And one of the ways that I encourage people to figure out what their great work might be, and it's not a, there's no kind of put, put a quarter in a slot and get a magic answer out. But one of the ways that works well for me is I think back onto peak moments for me, you know, peak moments where I'm like, God, that was great. That was, that was me showing up as the best version of myself. That was me showing up as the person I want to be. And when you think of those past stories, I always think those part, the, the stories of your past peak moments contain the seeds for your future great work. And part of what's brilliant about the stories is it gets you beyond your education and your training and your career path and the letters after your name and gets you into somewhere else altogether. Can you give us an example of one of your uh, past peak moments? Sure. So I'll, I'll contrast it. So one of the fancy things that I have on my resume that you know vaguely impresses some people is that I'm a Rhodes Scholar or I was a Rhodes Scholar. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether you whether you're always a Rhodes Scholar or whether it's in the past, but whatever. I went to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and you know, most people don't care or don't even know what that means. But there are some people who go, "Oh, Rhodes Scholars, that's impressive." You know, fancy, famous people were Rhodes Scholars, and all of that's true, and that's really one of the kind of the bright, shiny, glittering things there. And I'm very proud of being a Rhodes Scholar, but I wouldn't call it a great work moment for me. Now, great work moment. So a story I tell often or fairly often is when I was 17, I took a year off before, after finishing high school, but before going on to university, went to England. I lived in Australia at the time, went to England, worked in a school as a kind of part-time teacher, which was fantastic, but daunting because literally three months previously, I was finishing my own high school exams. Now I'm teaching 14 year olds. So totally out of my depth and working with one class 10 year olds there's only 10 kids in the class but six of them were deaf four of them had adhd so they were a chaotic class and i i really didn't have control particularly on the day that one of the kids picked up a chair and threw it through the window (laughs) so i'm knowing oh my goodness this is this is truthfully not going as well as i'd hoped i mean i know i'm not trained as a teacher but i know that that's not a good thing when somebody throws a window through the chair a chair through the window and that process of 
calming myself down, calming the kids down, getting control back, reasserting my authority, all of that still resonates in terms of this is the person I'm striving to be. Because what's going on there? Well, if you unpack the story, if you look underneath the hood, what the values are that show up, it's about being a teacher, being in service like that. It's about enjoying being on the edge of things on kind of a little bit of chaos. It's about serving people who might not be always fully served. Um, it's about trying to figure out ways to unlock people's creativity and their potential. All of that kind of gets shows up in that story if I sit and I reflect and I pull out what the core values are. And all of those are values that I still seek in the work that I do. I love that. I love that. And I totally can resonate with that. So thank you for sharing that. I want to go sure. into influencing and teaching. Yeah. Because as leaders, and we lead in so many arenas in our life. And, and on the show, I talk a lot about it. So whether you're leading your home, your family, you're leading uh, a community group, you're leading in the workplace, we're leaders in many aspects of our lives. And sure. one of the things that becomes frustrating with when you lead is the lack of influence, right? Or how do you motivate? How does one influence? So if you can address <laughs> right. that, that'd be great. Well, I think the first thing is as you become more senior, as you move into this leadership role, all it does is really reveal that you never had control over anything anyway. <laughs> like It's like parenting. Yeah, it's like, okay, if you think you're in control, you just don't understand what's really going on here. So all we have is influence. Um, the control we have, if we have any at all, is fleeting and illusionary and easily broken. So that's both useful and terrifying to, to understand. And what it means, I mean, this is the classic model from, uh, well, who did it? Who did the Seven Habits of Highly Successful People? Oh, Stephen Covey. Yeah, so I think this is a Stephen Covey thing, which is the, the circle of control, the circle of influence, and then what you can neither control nor influence. And when you work that out, it turns out that you control very, very little. You control your own reaction to situations and you control your own behavior. That's pretty much it. <laughs> it's like it's tiny. However, you do get a chance to influence more than you might think because you get to influence everybody around with how you show up and how you role model and what you do. And then there's just a vast amount that you can neither control nor influence, of course. So for me, a big part of it is around going, you know, let's let's start on the assumption that you have little to no control of what, what's going on, and you probably don't really understand what's going on nearly as well as you think you do. That's, that's, it's, it's just useful to be humble like that, <laughs> going, okay, if that's reality, now how do I handle this? And for me, influence comes through two things, or maybe three things. The first is self-awareness, self-management, you know, kind of doing your own work to become smarter and wiser about who you are and how you show up in the world and what matters to you and what impact you have on people. So, Corinne, let me ask you, let me turn the tables here briefly. You know, in terms of, because I know you've done a lot of thinking and work and talked to a lot of people about this, what, what's been a process or an exercise or a tool or a body of thought 
that's really helped you deepen your sense of who you are and how you show up in the world? I do a lot of reflection and, right. and I do, uh, I, I ask a lot of questions. And one of the things that I learned from Kristen Neff down at University of Texas is to, I used to beat myself up, but to not beat myself up, but really ask questions and learn from my perceived mistakes where I, where I made mistakes, but always looking back at learning and growing. And then that's, so reflection has been huge. It's a huge daily practice for myself. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so that process of like meditating perhaps or journaling in the morning or in the evening, a wonderful practice to kind of self-reflect, see your patterns, learn from that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before we hit the go button on this, we were talking about our mutual friend, Jen Loudon. And Jen's been in my mastermind group for, for I think 10 or 11 years now. We've been together that long. And one of the great things for me is having this mastermind group because – I mean, this is embarrassing to admit, Corinne, but I'm basically a really slippery, elusive character. I'm like, uh, I'm really hard to coach or pin down because, you know, I'm smart. I think quickly. I understand coaching so I can see what's happening to me. And when you can see what's happening, you can find ways of dodging it, but dodging it in a way that looks like you're not dodging it. So it's like I can kind of fake doing self-awareness moments really, really well. Um with my mastermind group, these are you know five or six really experienced coaches who also know have seen me play and operate for ten or eleven years. I cannot pull anything over their eyes. You know, they're like they're completely unimpressed by anything that I try and pretend to do or to, or be. So for me, that's been a really powerful thing—a a circle of people who know me well enough and love me well enough to not allow me to get away with my own BS. And you know. We all have our own different paths. Some people love the Enneagram. Some people love having a coach. But just that first process, which is get to understand who you are, look into what your shadow is, see the messiness of who you are, embrace your flaws, embrace your strengths. Know that's all who you are. That's a that's a, the starting point because it then allows you to show up as a more complete human being. You know, the uh, – the, I think it was it? is Carl Jung who said, I'd rather be whole than be good. And I think that's part of our journey. How do I become whole? Because when you become whole, you become more authentic. More authentic means more influential. The second piece I think can really matter in terms of, um, it's kind of connected, is just the ongoing way you show up in the world. You know, uh, I'm not a parent. Uh, I'm happily child-free. But I, I remember somebody saying, look, it's almost impossible to get kids to do what you tell them to do. <laughs> but it's equally almost impossible for them not to copy how you show up and act in the world. And I love that. I mean, I'm not a parent, so what do I know? I know nothing. But that seemed to be really true to me, which is actually how you show up on a day-to-day -day basis is a way you influence people. And um, – that means having a sense of your what's integ what integrity means to you, what consistency means to you, what authenticity means to you. So I guess those two things are connected. And then I guess the third thing, and this kind of ties into the Coaching Habit book, is I think asking a good question, staying curious, being on somebody's side is a really powerful way to influence people and typically works a whole lot better than advice and telling people what to do and giving them the answer and often works a whole lot better than giving them the command or the order. 
So that's not to say there's not a place for advice giving and there's not a place for saying I'm making the decision and this is the decision. It's just that in the context of leadership, those are overused skills and they don't often work. They often, well, there, I'm getting tangled up in my own triple negative. They don't work nearly as well as people would like them to work. Asking a few good questions, staying curious a little bit longer, rushing to action and advice a little bit slower, I think that's an underutilized leadership skill that is at the essence of the heart of influence. Michael, you just made me think about Dan Pink, who's been a frequent guest on the show, and one of the things he talks about in Drive is autonomy. And one, yeah, exactly. of the, one of the things that I just put the connection to of, cause I think of telling as fixing yeah. and, and there's, and I, now I understand why I don't like people to tell me what to do because I don't, I don't <laughs> right. want them to fix me and I don't want to lose my autonomy. Yeah. So that's perfect. Cause Dan's stuff is, is spot on, you know, in drive, he talks about the three things that actually increase and fuel motivation, a purpose and autonomy and mastery. And so autonomy, you've just talked about and made the point that in essence, autonomy is giving people as many choices as possible. And uh, one of the great ways to do that is to ask questions rather than tell people what to do. Mastery is helping people get better at what they're doing. And to do that, they need to learn. And honestly, people don't learn when you tell them stuff. I mean, they just, I mean it'd be nice if they did, but they just don't. And they don't even learn when you do stuff. They learn when they have a moment to reflect on what just happened. For instance, at the end of this podcast, Corinne, it'd be interesting to ask your listeners what was most useful or most valuable for you about the podcast. I love that question. I'm going to start using that. Yeah, it's a great week. It's, it's the seventh and final question in the book, the learning question. And what happens is this. People go from listening to you and me talk and go – God, Corinne's so smart and Michael's okay and I'm enjoying this conversation, to now they have to figure out what they want to take from the conversation. They have to figure out where the value is for them. They have to do that thinking and that's the learning moment. That's where new connections get made. That's the path to mastery. So if you look at Dan's three things, uh, purpose, autonomy and mastery, you know, you talked about autonomy, giving them choices, talked about mastery, helping them learn. And purpose for me actually has a really nice connection back to the great work, which you were just talking about, which is, you know, what's the work that has most impact, has most meaning for you? And how do you find that? And again, that's going to come through reflection and answering questions. I love that. And then I was thinking about another person you and I both like is Dan Coyle. The, yeah. the talent code, and he's been on a bunch too. And the the idea of turning a reflective, creating a reflective practice. Yeah, his stuff is fantastic around what does it take to build talent? Mm -hmm. And that it's not just a, you get blessed with talent, although obviously some of us have a few DNA things or genetic things that will tip them over towards success or not. But what for me is really powerful is this idea of deep practice that he brings into the world or, or he doesn't bring into the world, but he can, can he, for me, he summarized it in a way that was really useful. And part of it is around you know, breaking down what you're doing into small, discrete modules so that you're not trying to practice a piece. I mean, his, I think his thing is a tennis serve. You're not trying to just practice a serving a tennis. You practice bouncing a ball or you practice throwing the ball up 
or you practice the swing through, but it's got distinctive parts. And then doing it in fast and doing it slow and doing it in a really mindful way. And that's part of the reflection piece you're talking about. But thirdly is then learning what success feels like, getting that in your, your head and your body and your heart. And that is what allows you to refine your behaviors to become successful at what you want to do. Mm-hmm. I love it. Love it. So um, I think this is. <laughs> You're what... like, where are we? <laughs> it's like you, I want... random, I've randomly wandered into the wilderness. So pull us back, Corinne. Well, well Dan, I mean, Dan Pink and Dan Coyle, they, you know, I love their work and, and you do too. And to bring it in. I think is is really important, right? And those are great resources for the listeners. Yeah, for and, sure. And I, but I want to go back to this. Um, people don't learn when we tell them, and we so want to tell people. <laughs> we so do. Right? It's like, yeah. let me just get you there. Just can you just just jump on my train? I mean, I used to say this when I was in my twenties, and I was yeah. teaching at a college and, and coaching swimming, and I was like, just jump on my train. I'll just get you to where you want to go. Will you just stop? Right. Yeah. And and that that works in the short short term but it's not sustainable. And and the reason why we like advice giving is subtle. I mean, there's an obvious reason, which is we get rewarded for it and we practice it a lot. So the more we do it, the more we tend to do it. But a more nuanced, subtle understanding of, of the resistance to not giving advice. The, the thing is, when you give advice, you feel pretty good about yourself. You are in control of the conversation. You are the smart one. You have the answer. You have high status in this conversation. The other person has low status because you're telling them what to do. You know where this conversation is going. You are, and I'm doing air quotes here, Corinne, you are adding value. Here's the thing, though. Your advice actually just isn't as good as you think it is. (laughs) And what most people are doing is they're trying to solve the first challenge that shows up. And one of the things that becomes really obvious is the first challenge that gets talked about is almost never the real challenge. It's just the first thing that gets talked about. So now people are solving the wrong problem by offering slightly crappy advice to it. It's really not a great leadership strategy. And when you move to asking questions, even though this is a great act of servant leadership, even though it encourages autonomy and mastery, even though it is a way of really showing up as a powerful leader in the world, it's not that comfortable. Because when you ask a question, you're giving them control of the conversation. You're giving them high status. You don't know where this conversation is going to go. You don't know how you're going to react to the next thing that gets said. It's a lot more ambiguous not more uncertain than you would like. But what you're doing it is, is I think of it as an act of servant leadership. You're going, I'm prepared to step into this ambiguous, uncertain, uncomfortable place of asking a question and then shutting up and waiting for an answer. But I'm doing it because I know this plays to a bigger game of leadership. Does it get easier to ask questions? Uh, you know, I think it does. I mean, I, it does. It has for me, and I'm trying not to do the, well, if it's true for me, then it must be true for the entire universe because, you know, I am the universe. Um, but I think with all, all of these practices, there's a, I mean, you know this cycle, you go through the unconscious, unknowing phase when you don't even realize how bad you are. Then you go to the unconscious, 
no, sorry, the unconscious, so sorry, unconsciously incompetent. That's when you don't know how bad you are. Mm -hmm. Then you move to consciously incompetent where you go, oh, man, I suck at this. <laughs> and it's, a, it's, a, it's not a nice place to hang out, but, of course, it's the place where you learn the most. And then you move to consciously competent where you're like, oh, look at me. I'm asking questions. I'm pretty good at it. I can see the impact. And finally, hopefully, you get to consciously, unconsciously competent, where it's just like in your bones. You don't even realize that you're doing it. But, you know, there are times where I'm, let's say, facilitating one of our programs, and I'll ask a question. And there'll be, you know, one heartbeat, two heartbeat, three heartbeat, nothing from the audience. I'm like, I'm dying here. <laughs> I'm, you're killing me. But then somebody will speak up and it will be fine. So it does get easier. It just doesn't get always super easy. But I think one of the problems, though, is that we want it in our bones without going through those steps, without going through the messy, without going through the mistakes. We want it in our bones. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, bad luck. You don't get that. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I've been asking questions for a really long time. I've done the show for ten years. I've been a coach, and and it's interesting because my I'm pretty comfortable asking questions, but I can in new environments or you know having guests come on, I can get nervous. I can't. It does take me courage, and I have to tap right. into my value of courage and step into that to nice. ask questions. And I think that's important for the listeners is that. You know, there may be certain arenas again where it can be really easy to ask a question. And you can do it for a long time. You can have that deep practice, but you can still get nervous and that's okay. Yeah. You know, I have a, so this might be a tool that's helpful for people because um, I completely agree with what you say. You're like, you know, I've been doing this for years. Most of the time I'm awesome and I don't, and I'm in my groove. And then occasionally I get discombobulated for whatever reason. You know, you're having somebody as good looking as me on the show, understandably nervous. I, you know, you, I'm, I'm presenting in front of a, a big crowd of people I haven't met. I get a little nervous. And I have in my facilitation bag where I keep my bells and my tape and my Sharpies, I have this little list called the, the this, not that. And it's a reminder of how I want to show up when I'm at my best. And so these pairs of words are what I'm like at my best and what I'm like when I'm slightly off my game. So the pairs of words like, I wanna be curious, not a know-it-all. I wanna be stepping forward, not stepping back. I want to be humble, not overly clever. You know, it's just this combination of words like this. And it's just a reminder that when under pressure and under stress and I default to being a little nervous, being a little shy, being a little know-it-all, just how to get back to the way I, I, I want to be because I know that's what I'm like when I have the most impact, the most influence. I love how you have that list because when we do get really nervous, right, we all of a sudden can't pull it out of the mental files that we have. And to have and it in writing is great. Yeah. And it's laminated, so I carry it around with me all the place. If you Now, I this might be useful for people if they can find it. I published an article on LinkedIn couple of, a month ago, let's say. So let's say December, around about then. It's called something like My Weekend with Marshall Goldsmith uh, because I got chosen to be a group of coaches to go down and spend a weekend with Marshall and 25 other awesome coaches. And I actually wrote about feeling nervous about showing up for that group. And in the article, I actually include a photograph of my little card, the This Not That card. 
So if people are particularly curious about that, I know a bunch of you won't be curious, but if you are, if you type in My Weekend with Marshall Goldsmith, Michael Bungay-Stanya, you'll probably find the article. And if you find the article, you'll see my, my exact this, not that list. Okay, great. And I'll put that in the show notes too. That'll be a great resource. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's, it's so important because sometimes people think, oh, when you are you know, <laughs> you know, have achieved this great level. You're in the promised lands of your career, right? You've that's written right. these books, you know, all these people, it's not going to be a problem. And I think that's also the other side of the show is here's behind the green curtain, right? Yeah. We, we, as we evolve and as we become the best versions of ourselves, we, we find more opportunities to challenge us, don't we? Well, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, I think for the people listening to this podcast i think that's the truth um i there, i think there are people out there who have a degree of non-self-knowledge <laughs> that are kind of blissfully unaware that they should be feeling nervous <laughs> at this stage <laughs> and i'm like dude you're not nearly as good as you think you are you actually should have a degree of anxiety around this because you're overrating yourself but i think for many of us we underrate ourselves and and it's so easy to project on to career in your podcast for 10 years, a coach or this or that, you know, she probably just skates through life with no concerns or cares at all. And I'm like, yeah, that may not be the entire truth. My listeners know the truth because I'm pretty, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty authentic with them. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> so that's, that's a great point. And I want to go back to, um, this idea of teaching and what is the best way you talk about in your book, but if you can give this point to the listeners, what is the best way to get learning? Well, I think there's a, 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 the starting point is to frame the way you show up in the world as somebody who could help people learn. Um, you know, there's a definition of coaching by, um, John Whitmore, who's who's one of the kind of the fathers of coaching. He wrote a great book called uh, Coaching for Performance. And, you know, having looked at a lot of definitions of coaching, his is one that really stands out and kind of passes the test of time. And one of the things he says, it's not the whole definition, but part of it is helping people learn rather than teaching them. And that's a nice distinctive distinction. I mean, it's a little semantics, but it's, uh, you know, helping people learn, teaching them feels like telling them what to do. Helping people learn feels like creating this space where they figure the stuff out. So first step number one for me, Corinne, would be to say, I kind of see myself, part of my role is to help people learn. And then for me, it's about questions. You know, that's the kind of, that's the drum I beat these days. And that last question that we've talked about, what was most useful or most valuable for you here? Such a powerful way to finish a one-to-one -one conversation, to finish a team meeting, to finish an email, to finish any exchange with somebody, be it somebody on your team, be it your boss, be it a peer, be it a customer, be it a vendor, just to help them figure stuff out. But there's a bonus to it. Because if you ask somebody what was most useful or most valuable about this conversation, a few things play out. The first is, the first thing you're subtly doing is framing this conversation as a useful, valuable conversation. I mean, if we say to people, what was most useful about this podcast? We're not saying, was there anything useful at all about this podcast or was it a complete waste of time? We're saying, what was most useful? 
In other words, this was a useful podcast. What was most useful out of all of the useful stuff? The second thing is by asking the question, what was most useful here for you? You're helping people find the value and they'll find value that they might otherwise miss. I mean, we've all had the meetings where we've gone, wow, I was fantastic in that meeting. I had advice dropping like pearls from my lips. Um, And somehow none of it actually sticks with the other person. So what this does is help them find the value. And then the third bonus here, Corinne, is that when you ask somebody what was most useful and most valuable and they tell you, you're now getting feedback. So you now know what to do next time differently so that you can focus on the stuff that's most useful and most valuable. I love that. That's becoming one of my favorite questions. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, so for you, could I, could I ask this question in this way? What was the most useful, um, way? I don't know. Uh, what, what did, okay, let me think about this. Now I'm stumbling on my own questions, asking the question. That's good. What's awesome, what's awesome about asking questions is if you stumble around on a question or you ask a question that doesn't really work, nothing really gets broken. You just go, oh, that didn't really work. Let me have another go at that. Just like Corinne's doing. There we go. I'm demonstrating in real life. What was the most useful way for you to learn about the best version of yourself? That's a, in, in some ways, it's, it's been a collection of a slow building collection of silt. You know, I just think of it as like the bottom of a lake shore. And it's like over, over time, just stuff accumulates and it builds up. And, you know, I've been trying to do self-awareness stuff for 30 years now. I remember as a 17-year-old going to my first ever kind of course, it was on how to be spontaneous. And honestly, I got so much ribbing from all my friends. It was like, wait a second, you're going on a course on how to be spontaneous. Um, but it's kind of the first time where we did self-reflection stuff and who are you and how do you want to show up in the world? And I've done all sorts of stuff from immunity to change processes to uh, practicing improv. I mean, I'm kind of like forever trying to throw myself out against the world and learning from the way I bounce back off the world and bounce off the floor. But I'm going to say that the what's played out longest term in terms of having the most impact has been with my key relationships with my wife and you know, what I've learned about me from her over 25 years. And then from the mastermind group, what we were talking about earlier about how they see me very clearly for who I am, love me, support me, but also kind of reflect where I'm a little delusional or a little soft or a little vulnerable or a little confused or a little self-aggrandizing. You know, they're great mirrors in a supportive, loving way to give me all of that. How do you stay curious, Michael? I, uh, it honestly just feels like wired in. <laughs> I mean, I just am curious. Uh, so I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if it's a muscle that, because, you know, I read widely. Uh, I, I read fiction. I read nonfiction. I read business. I read science. Um, but, you know, I just actually, I read something today. So Adam Grant, who is the, uh, 
uh, he wrote Give and Take, a terrific book, and the originals. Uh, and he puts out a monthly newsletter, which I think is great. It's kind of it's typically a summary of six or seven articles. Uh, he quoted, he saw recently Yo-Yo Ma, the, the cellist. And Yo-Yo Ma basically said our creativity, which is another way of thinking about curiosity, gets diminished when we're no longer willing to reinvent our own idea of who we are. Yeah, exactly. So I'm still pondering that. and I'm trying to let it settle in and see what that means. Uh, and it's interesting for me. It caught my eye because at the moment we're in a process of going, I'm in a process of going, okay, what's the next phase for Michael? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very associated with my company, Box of Crayons, and we've got this real focus on practical coaching skills for busy managers through the book and through the programs. But it feels like we're getting to a point where I'm separating out a bit from there's Michael and then there's box of crayons. And so that process of reinvention is taking place, but it's not something that you just turn on or turn off or turn left or turn right. It takes a bit of mulling over to go, okay, who am I now? Michael, I appreciate that because I think people, one of the things that people think is when a question is asked, there needs to be an immediate answer and it needs to be right. And, <laughs> and, 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 and then that becomes like closing a door because it's like, if I can't give an answer, I'm going to say, I don't know. And we slam the door. So I appreciate right. you sharing this process of, you know, you're mulling it over and even, and even this, this quote, you know, from Adam Grant about Yo-Yo Ma and how it both rung something to us, but we've got to let it percolate, you know, and work around it to, or work through it to, to really, I think, get to a deeper level with it instead of yeah. this, I, you know, cause I used to think, oh, if I'm intelligent, I get it right away and I can intellectually get things right away, yep. but to get it into my bones, it takes time. Yeah. I, I, I'm, for me, certainly one of my patterns is I need to kind of gnaw on it like a bone for a while too far. You know, when I look at I keep writing down ideas or strategies or things that occur to me around a certain topic and I throw them in a file. And then what I tend to do is when I open the file, I've just written down the same idea 98 times. <laughs> I keep having the same idea. I'm like, okay, A, that's telling me it's a good idea. B, it's telling me <laughs> I don't have as much imagination as I thought. But I think there's that, the, you know, after I've written it down 98 times, it's starting to feel like that's the right thing. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So thank you, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Michael, thank you so much. It was so much fun talking with you today. I really appreciate your time and and coming on and sharing this with the listeners today. So thank you. Uh, It's been a pleasure. It's been a really fast 45 minutes. So I've enjoyed the conversation too. All right. Well, thank you. There is so much in this interview with Michael. Oh my gosh. Like I don't even really know what to talk about. I have so many things that I want to say and not that much time. Well, I do know what I want to talk about. This idea of the being the best version of yourself. One of the things that I work on with clients is so that they can evolve to be the best version of themselves. And something that he said quite a bit is the our wholeness. And I've said this to clients before. Can you love all of him? All parts, not just the great parts, but all parts. And to be in relationships to, whether they're loving relationships, romantic relationships with your family, with your children, in friendships, with colleagues, when all of you can show up, your strengths, your weaknesses, all of you, and just like My- Michael was talking about his mastermind group, they know him and he can be slimy, 
that they know him and they love him and they will call him on it. That's one of the things that we want in order to become the best version of ourselves is that we have to own all of us ourselves, all parts of ourselves and not orphan out the parts that we're like, Ooh, don't want people to know that about me. Let's just hide that away there because that is shame filled. And if you try to hide it, it's going to come up and it will blow at some point. So don't try to pack it down. Really own your story and love yourself, love yourself. And then you get to work on how do you want to evolve to this next version of yourself, to this best version of yourself. And again, it's moving because as you evolve, as you grow, as you challenge, and as Michael said, if you're here, you're one of those people you want. There's something inside that wants to allow for involvement. I mean, the emails that I get from listeners around the world about how this show helps them and it gives them fuel for their knowledge or, you know, insight, right? You are here because you want to evolve into the best version of yourself. And it's constant. And in in terms of, it's not like, oh, well, once I turned 45, I've evolved to the best version of myself. And now I can just sit on the beach and drink margaritas all day long. I mean, while that's fun, at some point it gets boring right? Anytime you do a vacation, there's also sometimes it's just nice to go back to work and to challenge yourself and to be able to appreciate those challenges. So a couple things that I wanted to go back to is he just asked such great questions and I love them. One of the things that he said in here, which I feel like is almost the secret sauce and I'm like so anti the secret sauce is he talked about there's three components of influencing, asking a good question, Staying curious and being on somebody's side. Oh, that one took me a while to percolate. Being on somebody's side. How often are you trying to manage somebody, lead somebody, influence somebody, but instead of being on their side, you're against them. Even though you may be on the same team, they feel that you're not on their side. The most powerful thing is to create that safe space where they know that you're on that side and you're willing to walk with them. So I'm going to say this again, asking a good question, staying curious, let go of judgment, people. It is so powerful to let it go. Judgment is armor and it really gets in the way. I know because I used to use it all the time and I worked on it for a good two years to let it go and it still can come up. It's like my default. It likes to be there it doesn't work. There's a huge cost to me and there's a huge cost to others. And when I'm at my best self coaching my clients, I don't have judgment. And that's why I'm so effective as a partner for them. But staying curious and being on somebody's side. Think about that the next time you're wanting to be of influence. And the other thing that he said is, how do you show up day in and day out is how you will influence people. Think about the managers. Think about the leaders that you respect and that you don't respect. My hunch is the ones that you don't respect are the ones who tell you to do something but aren't willing to walk through it too. So that I think is a really important, if we want to call it the secret sauce. I just, when I went back to re-listen to it, I went, oh my gosh, this was really key. The other thing Michael's talked about was stories of your past peak moments. And if you can unpack that, you can learn a lot about yourself. 
And I think it's important to reflect when we make mistakes and learn from that because part of it's we're owning our story, right? We're not letting shame come down on us. But this idea of stories of your past peak moments and understanding that and that will like, it helped him uncover his values and our values are our guiding light. That gives us our purpose. That gives us our why. And on those miserable days, those moments, those shit storms that we go through and we're like, seriously, why am I doing this? We go back to, here's my why. And I love that stories of past peak moments because when I went, when I go through my own, I've learned so much about why I do certain things in my life, why I show up, why things are important to me. And when I was at my best, how I can transfer that into another arena that it may be new. I may not have as much practice so that I can um, cultivate that experience as well. As we wrap up this show, the topic today was leadership and doing great work. And the definition, according to Michael, of great work is you have more impact and meaning. And enable to, to be able to have more impact and meaning comes down to how are you leading and how are you influencing and with letting go of the attachment and letting go of the ego. And it's an, and we go back to so many of the concepts that we talked about, whether it's Dan Pink and drive and mastery and autonomy and purpose or Dan Coyle and about, it's not that great leaders are born because that would be like saying, well, great swimmers, our talent is born. That's how I grew up, but that's a very fixed mindset. Talent is created. And as you practice and as you are willing to pick yourself up when you make those mistakes, as you're willing to unpack your great moments and learn how you can influence and so you can lead, again, whether it's in your job, in your career, in your classroom, in your home, how do you lead and never discount the relationships that we have? Michael spoke about his wife and how that is one arena where he's learned more about himself and has allowed him to evolve to the best version of himself. And if he can learn more about who he is and his own self-awareness, then he can go and lead and influence in other areas of his life. There's so much leadership in all of us. It doesn't come down to a job title. It doesn't come down to a job description. It's about how do you show up in your world and influence your environment. With that being said, you know I'm going here because this is going to be the new closing. And you who've listened to the show will know where I got it from. I'd love to hear what was the most useful thing on this podcast with Michael today. Shoot me an email at hello at howshereallydoesit.com. If you sign up for my weekly newsletter, you can just hit reply because those go out on Fridays and hit reply back and let me know what was the most useful thing on this podcast. It's time to do a shout out to Mary Perry 38 for giving us iTunes love. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you love, love, love this show. And I just love, love, love your review of the show. So thank you for taking the time to go and do that. And you guys, it's not too late. You can still go do it. Until next time, I'm smiling big for you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.